0: to the Video Essay Podcast, a show featuring conversations with leading practitioners of videographic criticism. I'm your host, Will DeGravio, and on today's show, I sit down with Grace Lee, Ariel Avisar, and Sydney Wild-Harris to discuss what it was like co-curating this year's Sight and Sound poll of the year's best video essays. I also sit down with the one and only Kevin Bede Lee to discuss an innovative new master's program that he is starting at Merz Academy in Stuttgart, Germany. I will let Kevin describe the program in his own words, but essentially it is an innovative program that is an aspiring video essayist's dream. Sandwiched in between those two conversations are some commentary from some of the forum's leading practitioners, uh, practitioners who voted in this year's Sight and Sound poll, and they're going to provide some commentary on some video essays that particularly resonated with them, that impacted them this year, uh, and kind of go beyond their written commentary in this year's Sight and Sound poll. As always, please consider subscribing to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And also please consider subscribing to Notes on Videographic Criticism, which is the somewhat weekly newsletter that is the companion to this show that features interviews, commentary, um, and links to video essay news from around the web. If you're a fan or creator of Videographic Criticism, you'll definitely want to check out that newsletter. Uh, It's on Substack at thevideoessay.substack.com. And now, without further ado, here is Grace, and Sydney. And now I'm pleased to welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast three people whose names are familiar, I'm sure, to everyone who's out there listening. Uh, Ariel Avasar, Grace Lee, A.K.A. What's so great about that? Um, and Sydney Wild Harris, Grace, and Ariel um, joined me last year for a conversation on co-curating, co-editing. I don't actually don't know what the correct term is. Would you say we could talk about that? The 2019 Sight and Sound poll, and here today we are joined by Sydney, who was one of the co-editors with Ariel and Grace um, on the 2020 Sight and Sound poll of the year's best video essays. If you're not familiar with that poll, you should definitely go check those out. But Sight and Sound has essentially been curating a, a similar poll since 2017, and they are really, like, in a way, the Academy Awards in a sense for video essay work, where practitioners of the form get together and reflect on the year in video essay making and try to highlight not only some of the year's best works, but also some of the works that maybe went, you know, did not get as many views uh, throughout the course of the year. But um, I think that's one of my favorite things personally about the poll is that there are some works that literally, I think. Ariel Crocker, if I'm wrong, Like there was one I remember last year that literally had one view, right? Um, so ranging from one view to hundreds of thousands of views. So it's very exciting. And I'm very happy that you're all uh, joining me here on the show for a quick conversation um, that is really intended to encourage you to go read the poll itself where you can get a whole lot more information. So, I'll start first with a pretty simple question to you, Ariel, and to you, Grace, as our returning champions. What was different this year about curating the poll? Either uh, circumst- the circumstances obviously were very different, um, but also how did you go about curating the poll in a different way than the three of us did last year? Um, and I guess what was the experience like for you this year that was different from last year? Grace, I'd be curious to start with you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm mostly, it seemed to come together way more easily and quickly this year and we we couldn't work out why because there were more people (laughs) but it's like we really got into a a flow of like putting it all together and i guess because we'd like the two me and ariel had done it last year so we knew the ropes a bit more i guess i don't know i wouldn't have expected i wouldn't have expected to be any faster but it seemed like things came together more easily this year i didn't particularly notice any anything else different
2: well, I agree. It went a lot easier, a lot quicker. Um, mostly, I suppose, because uh, Will wasn't there to weigh us all down, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but getting the ropes uh, the first year, I guess, it's, uh, it's kind of a learning curve. So that was, uh, that was good. We did try this year to uh, diversify our contributor list in terms of uh, non academics more than uh, usual. We got, uh, I think, almost a 50 50 split this year, uh, which is good. Uh, other than that, we pretty much approached it the same way. Um, didn't change any any basic principles of organizing or curating.
0: And for those listening, we, we went into this in a lot of detail in, in our last conversation. So I'll definitely link to that at thevideoessay.com if you want to go learn in more detail. But I'm curious, just to follow up with you, uh, Ariel and Grace... The, the, my first thought was when you said it created quicker. I'm wondering if that was because it's like this this paradox of the pandemic, right? Do people have more time to stay at home and watch video essays and write about them or reflect them? Or do the, uh, uh, the horrible circumstances generally, is it harder to contribute to something like this? And I'm sure it varies person to person. And I'm wondering whether you felt that in in curing the poll different from this year like did you feel as though uh in any because i'm asking this because you kind of touch on it in your introduction right in that this whole idea of this continuation of community right that extended to you know uh into 2020 in a very uh unorthodox way and that we were all kind of connecting online with video essay related things um and did you feel that in co-curating the poll? like Were people eager to participate? Did you notice that there was an increased enthusiasm? Was there a wider range of of works that were watched Um, because people had more time to sit at home and go watch that extra video or go find that new YouTube channel or something like that? Was that your sense? Because it kind of seemed like that's what you were getting at in the poll in a way.
2: Uh, Well, in terms of response, I think we got about the same uh, response rate as last year. Um, There were a little bit more videos. I mean, a a bit more... uh, um, Unique videos picked for the poll than last year, a uh, little bit. I don't know if that's a trend. Um, I, I, d- I do know for myself personally, I had uh, a lot more uh, online collaborations this year, uh, which were, if not a direct result of, then a, a byproduct of the circumstances. Um, but that's my personal experience. Uh, I didn't feel that uh, the, the poll as a whole uh, felt different in terms of uh, engagement, enthusiasm about the same I would say
1: yeah and I think I mean from what I've heard from people um there's actually like everyone's been saying oh I've I feel like I haven't watched any videos this year (laughs) Uh, I don't know if, if that's a side effect of like quarantine that it just you know we're not really registering the things that we have watched um or maybe you know maybe it seems like they were they were so long ago that can't have been this year like I was I know a lot of people who were like scrambling last minute to watch a bunch of videos because they felt like they hadn't watched enough videos this year or they were like, what have I, what have I even watched?
2: I was hoping for more video essays on television this year, that there were no new films, but lots of new television, but nope, that didn't happen.
0: Yeah, it is interesting because it it did seem like that was where, like, I would say for me this year, this was the year I watched more television than ever, right? Like, and of course, Grace, I think you just recently released a video on The Queen's Gambit, right? Which is amazing. Check it out. We'll do a plug there. Here's a charge for people out there not to think of it. I, I wonder what the average, like, how long does it take for a TV series to kind of enter the video essay verse, right? Like, are people, uh, like, because the Queen's Gambit, I guess, is theoretically it's done, right? I guess they, they could make another season. But so maybe that makes it more enticing to video essay people. But I, I don't know. Maybe someone out there can do a study on that. Sydney, question to you as the newcomer, as the newbie. Uh, what was it like for you co-editing uh, the poll? As someone who I, I know has engaged with past polls and has done that, like, how did you come into this? How how did you find the process? And I guess more curious for you, like, was there something that you think that could be changed going into to next year? Like what could be done differently? And I don't mean that in a sense of like knocking Ariel or Grace or me or past uh, <laughs> co-curators, but you know, the poll I think improves every year as new people bring new things to it. So uh, kind of what are your general thoughts?
3: Um, I was really excited to be the newbie this year. I think more than anything, I wanted to get in how I could fit in, basically. Like, at, at no point did I, I just wanted to kind of not sit back and, and see, like, what else I what else was happening around me, but I just really wanted to be, like, of best use to the process. So that was really my biggest concern was, like, okay, cool, how can I slot myself into this and not be a nuisance was really my, like, how, how can I best show up and, and do what I can to, to help out the process um, and to try to slot into where you were? Because I had some big shoes, to, some big Will shoes to fill, you know? Um, it, was really, it was a really cool process, though, for me to get to see what was happening on the other side. Um, and if there's anything I, I'd say that I would want to see done next year, um, I think that this year was so unique because of all of the circumstances surrounding everything um, that if anything, I, I don't know what I would ask more of people, you know? about you know how to what they would submit or when they would submit it or how much they should write. I'll say this. Um, I narrowing down the number of nominees I had was hard. That was hard for me. That was rough. Um, also really noticing how I was familiar with a lot of people on the playlist, but I was also like introduced to new people on the playlist, which was a really cool part of getting to see like who was nominated and who nominated them. And were they from YouTube or Vimeo or both? Do they make music videos? Um, and, and getting to see like who was nominating each other and kind of getting to see how people knew each other throughout this field was really, really cool as well. So it wasn't just like, you know, friends were nominating each other. That wasn't necessarily happening. But you could definitely tell who had access to different uh, information, you know, who had access to what was being released when, who was plugged into who was releasing what and when. That was really cool. So that's not really a note. It's just interesting to see who had access to what video essays were coming out and when. (laughs)
0: No, I think that's so true. This question of access, I think, is actually something that is super important. And I, I actually saw this question pop up on social media. I think perhaps, Errol, you were part of this conversation. But I think it was Adrian Martin who made the point that a lot of video essays are included as bonus content on Blu-rays or DVDs. and he and uh, Christina Alvarez-Lopez make a lot of video essays that way. But of course, those aren't accessible unless you go and purchase a DVD. And similarly, I notice every year that there are works uh, that screen at film festivals um, and that are not widely available or part of a curated collection. Um, I think that the Monographs uh, collection being a perfect example, like I, I missed that screening window for whatever reason. And now I have to wait to see them at a, at a later date. And so this question of like, I want, I do wonder whether that is something that could be considered going forward. I think Kevin Beale actually suggested this, like maybe screener copies could be provided like in for a short window in the lead up to the poll. And that actually leads me to to one of my questions uh, that I have for you. And it, it seemed to me that this year, and I and I could be wrong uh, because th- this could have happened in years past, but I just kind of noticed it more that I, I saw kind of people Plugging their video essays more on social media at the end of the year, like putting them into showcases and really trying to reflect on on the work that they made at the end of the year. And that wasn't because necessarily because of the poll, but it seems like the poll is a way for the community is an invitation for the community to reflect in that way. And I think that's really exciting to me because it shows that we are thinking about accessibility, about resharing work, about realizing that like just because you release a video essay in January doesn't mean that it can't be reshared again at a later date. So I'm wondering what you all made of made of that and kind of what it speaks to about the, I guess, the what I'd say the growing significance of the poll in a way, and that it, it seems to have these other branches in which people are kind of representing and reshaping their own work at the end of the year in a different way.
2: Well, I think it, it is a relatively new phenomenon. I don't remember it in previous years, uh, at least not as much. To the examples that you listed on uh, your email, I would add uh, uh, film scalpels, uh, Twitter, Twitter thread, which listed uh, tons of materials. Very helpful guide. Um, I don't know how much it affected the poll. I mean, the people who um, presented these showcases are featured on the poll, but were also featured on last year's poll and the year before that. Uh, I don't know if it kind of... uh, made much of a difference but i think in itself it's a good thing it's kind of a collective uh, stock taking and if the poll is an excuse to do that that's great it's a place to showcase a lot more stuff than gets entered into the poll so i'm all for it
1: yeah i i use my twitter as (laughs) as a catalog because i don't i don't tweet very often so it's only when i see something that i think so good that i'm like i need to tell people more people need to know and that's when i tweet about it so i just go through my my year's worth of tweets I'm like, what did I share? Which is why sometimes I, I, I'm i really stretching the definition of video essay because it's just stuff that I tweeted about. I'm like, oh, yeah, this was really good. It's going on the list.
0: <laughs> but in a way, that's like so organic, right? Because it did. There is a like a mark at some point in the year where you were compelled enough by something to tweet it. Right. And and that for me, like to get to kind of here to my to my final question, that to me is the most exciting part of the poll or one of them, is that I'm just as interested in seeing what video essays that Grace Lee watched as I am in finding other videos to watch because I'm interested in the kind of year that you had, what your picks say about them. Um, I'm interested. A lot of times you can kind of read between the lines and and maybe if one creator released a video essay that you really like, they might uh, intentionally or unintentionally link to other videos that perhaps kind of influenced that work um, or maybe related to their own interests at that time. For me, this is a question that I'm very interested in, so I'm selfishly asking you all this now, and that why should we write about video essays? Like, this is going to be my preoccupation for, for this new year, just trying to like feel through that question. Um, and it seems to me that the poll, ironically enough, is like among the best examples each year of writing about videographic criticism, short form writing, um, but is really great.
3: I think one of my favorite parts of contributing to the playlist this year was like forcing myself to sit down and articulate exactly what it was that I loved about the videos that I was nominating and also getting to kind of like write like a love letter to the to the creators and this and this piece that I, you know, fell in love with over the course of the year. And thank you so much Ariel and Grace for reminding me about uh word word caps because I definitely uh, went over most of the time writing about these video essays. So I think that a lot. So <laughs> Um I think that, I don't know, I, I enjoyed the process of, of getting to write in, about each video individually, but I think that just because like one, it's at the end of the year, and for a lot of people, it's at the end of their semesters or quarters, or they're working on their year-end projects or what have you, you know, that maybe being given the option of being able to write like, you know, one one statement about where they are and how they're feeling about their video essays might also be a great option to have if they can't necessarily go through and write, you know, 700 words on each video that they nominated you know
2: I also enjoy uh, going over my favorites and deciding why I like them and articulating that that is a good point regarding the uh, idea of having uh, sort of a general text about how my year has been or my my year in video essays, Uh, I think a couple of contributors um, on this poll and the last one did uh, attach this sort of uh, uh, preface. I was wondering whether we should make this like a built-in part of the form and I'm leaning towards no because it would kind of make people think that they're supposed to, supposed to do it uh, and maybe also make the poll run really, really long if everyone did it. But the ones who did uh, attach that sort of text, it was very interesting to see. It kind of contextualizes the their the choices. Um, that's one thing. Uh, regarding the question of why should we write about video essays, kind of don't consider um, the poll, well, besides the introduction perhaps, I don't actually consider the poll uh, writing about video essays so much as it is um, conversing about video essays. It's more of a conversation, little snippets of uh, this is what I thought. Uh, it's not really a back and forth, but still it doesn't feel like, you know, a, a, like you would write in a, a critical essay or an online journal. There are those as well, but this is more of a conversation. So it just happens to be uh, written down.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I agree about the one piece of writing versus um, the whole selection of whatever someone's picking versus individual picks. We could maybe have it where you can like selectors could choose to either write one piece of text about their selection in general or a hundred words about each one rather than having everyone submit like a, a whole a thousand word personal essay about their year alongside all of like all of their writing about individual picks. But it's I'm I'm definitely in favour of allowing people to write in any in like the way that they want to and however they want to express express themselves, so I think it's a good it's a good idea to to give people options or at least make it clear that those options are available to people. Some people did do that um you know if someone wants to write a poem do a, do an interpretive dance <laughs> we're 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 all for creativity, and I think it's it's important or you know enjoyable to write about video essays in the same way that it is about any art form you know i I get as excited about video essays and online video as I do about films or television anyone anyone who's excited about something generally wants to share that with people so i think the video essay is an art form like any other so it makes sense that people people would enjoy talking about the ones that they love
0: i think that's beautifully said and i and i and i totally i totally agree and that's that's kind of the the genesis of my question is that one thing i've noticed and i appreciate what you've said ariel about this this kind of conversation versus academic writing and how the poll is definitely not academic writing but one thing I've, i've noticed and i i think i've I've seen it like on personal websites and but also on Vimeo or whatnot is that sometimes folks will take a blurb from the site and sound poll and kind of almost pull it out and attach to their video like as if like on a movie poster maybe you'd have like two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert you know it'd be like which I which I think is really exciting and I think to Grace's point there is I guess what I'm so interested about is that it seems that so much of what we do about video essays is this kind of resist this fight against writing right at least in like an academic context right it's this idea that we want to be able to quote with sound and images and we're, you know, unleashing the power of the film image in this cutting edge critical form. But then there is also this kind of legitimacy element to writing that Grace says that like video essay is art like any other and thus should be kind of written about in that same way.
3: I completely agree. Um, I, I'll say this, being in quarantine or being you know, like working from home, I've watched sometimes maybe more video essays than narrative or 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 feature documentary film honestly I've watched a lot of video essays this year so and I have shared a lot of video essays this year with my friends and family so I absolutely think I agree, completely agree with Grace and Ariel that yeah no this should be written about it's interesting though to be writing about the idea of writing writing about something that we are making videographic criticism of something else you know like using the word to comment on something <laughs> visual and audio again it's it has a cool cyclical nature to it but
2: yeah um, I'll also add the. Uh, this is the first year, if I'm not mistaken, that the uh, printed edition of Sight & Sound had their own uh, top 10 video essays of the year list. This is uh, purely an online uh, poll, and while the list isn't uh, the results of the poll, it's more of a... Uh, premature uh, guesstimate of the results of the poll. Uh, it does put us on the, uh, <laughs> on the printed map or something like that. Uh, and quite a few of the top 10 uh, videos did feature on the poll as well.
0: Yeah, that's an important plug. because I I actually had multiple people. I saw multiple on Twitter and I got some DMs by people being like, w- do you know what this is? Like what's happening here? And I think Nick Bradshaw, who's the web editor at Sight and Sound, I, think he, I saw he tweeted to Catherine Grant kind of clarifying and saying it's kind of an educated guess, maybe more of an edu- editor's pick of what's going on because Sight and Sound, who I guess who are fantastic and thank you to Sight and Sound for always doing this poll. Um, they had like an insanely thorough and dense end-of-year winter 2020-2021 issue where they did rounds of best films, best TV, best newcomers, best performances. And certainly uh, very exciting that, as Ariel mentioned, in that print issue was the 10 best video essays. And according to uh, Kevin, B. Lee, and others, that's the first time they've ever done that in the print issue. So definitely step in the right direction for video essays and, uh, and very exciting. Well, thank you so much to the three of you for joining us for this short conversation. And everyone, please go and check out the 2020 um, end of your poll. And a big thank you to the three of you. So much labor and time goes into the poll that is not realized. So thank you so much to the three of you um, for doing that. Uh, on behalf of everyone in the video essay community who I know appreciates it
4: uh, so much. And thank you to all the contributors as well. So thank you. My name is Oswald Eaton and I'd like to talk about CONFORM by French experimental filmmaker Johanna Wood for Arte Télévisions Télévisions' Blowout magazine. In CONFORM, Joanna Wood investigates filmic representation of totalitarian and dystopian societies. The result is an energetic supercut driven by a piece of electronic music composed and produced by the filmmaker herself. The images are closely entwined with the music. In sync with these first four notes, the setting is established with four shots from different films, in which we slowly approach monumental structures. Soon, a relentless beat sets a hypnotic trip in motion that lasts for roughly six minutes. The music is interspersed with snippets of dialogue in French and English.
5: We will
3: conform.
4: Those words are sometimes playfully synced with the shot they came from, sometimes with different images, and sometimes repeated as part of the rhythm. Conform. Like any well-made supercut, Conform is actually a whole series of supercuts. But Wood not only lists the key ingredients of dystopian films, she aptly tells a sort of layered meta-story of the genre. What's more, in many of her films for blow-up, and yes, she appropriately calls them films and not video essays, there is a moment when the story seems to have come to an end, but then she changes gears for the real finale. Within that framework, films interact with each other through matching eyelines and continuous gestures. *Conform* takes us from mass movement to single characters, from subordination to insubordination, and stylistically, from unchanged images to superimpositions and zoom ins. For me, a basic pleasure of supercuts lies in the fireworks of emotions, ideas, and memories triggered by the rapid succession of clips from films I recognize. Yeah. And since Vault uses clips from an amazingly wide range of works, most likely everyone will recognize at least some of them.
3: The
4: That wide array of films also made me aware of how early some of the genre conventions may have crystallized in film history. But above all, the sensory overload that's created out of uneventful images of people watching, standing, walking or chanting, reminds me of a contradictory aspect of life in 2020.
6: That feeling
4: of frantic stasis, of an increasingly louder 24-hour news cycle during that superficially static situation of lockdown and social distancing. And
6: here is Scout Tafoya. So for my contribution this year, I chose, among other things, um, including... The Incredible There Are Not, 36 Ways of Showing a Man Getting on a Horse by Nicholas Sugarfield. But the thing I think I should probably hone in on is uh, Hania Angus's uh, three short films. She made four this year, but um, the three of them that I chose were the ones with the more sort of deliberate essayistic qualities. Um, I chose them because when I first saw them, it was... Immediately apparent that this was somebody who had thought through every aesthetic and rhythmic decision. Like these these films, that not, none of them are more than three minutes. Um, most of them hover at about a minute in length, and they get across everything they need to in an incredibly short amount of time. They're essentially like perfect like pop songs of poetry and analysis. You know, between her voice harmonizing with the music that she's chosen or, you know, the way that she uh, puts... Effects on her voice to make it sound like it's coming through as a as a phone message. There's just such deliberateness to every decision that kind of immediately plants you in this um, emotional space, um, like very very carefully selected by the director. And I just thought that of all the things I saw this year, kind of about the way we consume media, hers was the most emotional and the most immediate, and it was also the one with the most specific agenda where she uses images to augment the things that she's saying. And they kind of uh, come into this kind of immediate harmony where she needs you to think about a young woman in a room and there's the image to go with it. But you're not really thinking about like, okay, why this? You know, why this image from Little Women or Lady Bird? You're just kind of aware that it's perfect uh, for the piece of poetry that she's reading to you. It's, it's it's you know, it, it, it's kind of funny to to describe how, why it's so effective because in the same way that you try to explain why, like, you know, a perfect bit of stand-up is funny, you sort of take away some of its power. But essentially I liked the idea that she was kind of wallpapering a house with images that I was very familiar with and in some cases don't even like as much as she does. You know, she uses a lot of stuff from Arias, movies, which do nothing for me, but in the service of telling her story made perfect sense because I had to then be like, okay, well, what is she going through that this particular piece of media really spoke to her? And, and, you know, it's kind of a fun trick to uh, get past the, uh, the critical brain, in essence, to you know force someone to think about why do they use this thing that you you know had written off for this, that or the other reason and it's uh you know it reminds you that the the video essayist's first job is not to not to convince you necessarily that this or that is interesting, but rather to simply use it to take what we understand in the moving image and And kind of push us past our initial reactions. And that includes our defenses and and our usual uh, critical understanding. And that's what she did. Uh, so spectacularly. You know, a lot of video essays are sort of catalogs of things, they're collections of things. I mean, the Zuckerfield thing is, is one of the better versions of it I've seen, for instance. You know, it's, here's here's what this and that and this mean about the person who created them. Here's what shots of men getting on and off of horses says about film culture at large and the director Raul Walsh. You know, that's kind of the, the backbone of... Of video essays as a form is collecting things that we know and, and showing them to this, uh, sh- showing them to their audience back again to get them to think about you know their placement and and what this means about the director. I think at their best they rewire images with which we're very familiar to produce new emotional reactions to them and I think that for instance the supercut is like the worst and most sort of uh, easy way to employ these things you know what I mean you 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 put 25 images of people crying under a pop song or whatever and that kind of gets people like oh I remember that but it doesn't really do anything but that's that's why something like tale of Eurydice is like so uh, disarming is it's a new piece of uh, poetry and it uses things that I was aware of to tell a story that I did not know in this iteration. Like every, every, every clip and it's so short, it's so brief and it's so, um, you know, immediately intuitive. It's kind of this like perfect study of synapses firing where, you know, she mentions father and there's a clip from the movie and you're like, Oh wow. That's, I wonder if that's somebody that she relates to in the way that she does her father. Like that's, that's the kind of fun thing about the video essay is that rather than treating it like a a, a tool for analysis, in this way, she uses film as a, a kind of an inverse investigative tool that she allows us a window into herself through the movies that made perfect sense in this thing. And she does them so fast that you get this like amazing kind of like lightning storm of influences and ideas on her. And she's really like opening herself up and her uh, points of reference in this way. And I, I wish, I guess, that there were more people doing that. You know, it's, it's we, we, we've proven, I think, especially Kevin Lee and uh, Chloe Gallaber Lane, and, uh, you know, we, we, we know that it can be used as an analytical tool and, and a way to really look hard at what, you know, the, the, the interaction between human beings and images. And I guess I'm, I'm happy and heartened to see somebody making things that look like video essays, but don't really act like them. I think that that's uh, heartening. And it gives me hope that there's about to be a really exciting wave of creators and creation.
7: Hi, this is Kevin B. Lee, and I want to give a special mention to two video essays from last year that actually were not on my list for Sight and Sound, but uh, was because I hadn't seen these videos when I had made my ballot, and they probably would have been on my list if I had. First one is The Rise of Film TikTok by the Twitter handle Kiki Crazed. I think that's also her YouTube account as well, K-I-K-I-K-R-A-Z-E-D. It's a fantastic, really... um well-assembled, well-edited, well-designed video that uh, just takes you through the wild, diverse worlds of um, film culture on TikTok and its potential uh, as a platform for film criticism. Uh, It really just gives you an amazing sense of how film criticism has evolved way beyond um, its traditional text-based practices into any number of um, mini genres of um, of using video to um, stimulate critical thinking. So really fantastic video. And I also want to mention the movie Gifts That Keep On Giving by Lee Singer, which he produced for Little White Lies. Uh, this is also a very well-researched and informative kind of deep dive into how the movies that have given rise to uh, many popular gifts and really questioning the relationship between uh, cinema and uh, these kind of new media expressions, memes and GIFs that kind of take, um, take film history and uh, kind of translate into a, a new form of online language. I think in both ways, both of these video essays really point to uh, what, I, what I call, and others call this post-cinematic practice, which is increasingly of interest to me, just like what happens to cinema after cinema. And these are really two great examples of that
8: my name is Shannon Strucci. I've done a lot of video essays on film and media history and culture and I did the fake friends parasocial videos. My pick for the poll this year was Street Cat Rescue Lionel by Flatbush Cats. I honestly hadn't watched that many video essays last year. It was not, I mean it wasn't a good year for anyone but it wasn't a good year for me personally and I didn't really have the time to set aside like I usually do to listen to podcasts or to watch video essays or any of that sort of stuff but I have gotten really into Flatbush Cats, which is a YouTube channel, I guess, run by one of the guys who runs a TNR group in New York City. And each video is a little story about a cat. Like he records this beautiful footage of cats from the time, like even before they take them in, to them taking them in, to them kind of acclimating them to being inside and being around people, and then to their adopted family. And the videos are just very well made and very touching. And I'm sure there's some level of, you know, embellishment Our dramatization to make them more palatable to a YouTube audience. But as far as a series of very well written, very well edited little documentaries, I think it's a great channel. And like a lot of stuff, like anytime I watch a documentary, it makes me want to record more stuff for my own video essays rather than just using footage that I found. And the Lionel video is one that I mean, from the second you start it, you know it's going to have a sad ending. But it's so touching and so well produced and there are a few times in it where you can tell like a really special moment was caught on camera of this very short little life that Flatbush cast that they impacted and I think it's just a really special video and I like the year before last, I selected a lot more video essays and I tried to choose things that a lot of video essayists wouldn't have watched or that might not be traditionally considered video essays. Like I think I put a Matt Coville video on and a You Suck it Cooking video. And this is along those lines, too. I just found it really touching and really well produced. And I thought it was something special and that I think more people should see and not just people who like look up the cat rescue videos on YouTube.
0: And here is Thomas Flight on The Strange Reality of Roller Coaster Tycoon by Jacob Geller.
5: I wanted to highlight this video in the poll, not just because it's the essay that introduced me to Geller's excellent body of work on YouTube, but because it represents several things about the video essay form that excite me. The first is the medium's potential to bring quality criticism and analysis to a more populist space. This video and Geller's work in general fits perfectly into the world of YouTube. Much of the media that he focuses on, often popular blockbuster video games, is also the focus of so much other popular content on the platform. But the way Geller leverages these pieces of media through the video essay form as lenses through which he can examine often bigger, more profound ideas than the ones that lie within the games themselves textually is a big part of what I find exciting about the video essay form. The ability to sometimes almost transcend the media itself being criticized or examined. In this case, using a little theme park simulation game from 1999, to talk about design-induced existential dread, all while drawing parallels between game design, real-world engineering, and internet culture. But there's another aspect of the form that this essay represents for me that I think speaks to a power that certainly isn't unique to the video essay form, but one that I think the form is particularly well-suited to, and that is for conveying the specificness of the essayist's subjective experience of a work. Prior to stumbling across this video, I knew other people had played Roller Coaster Tycoon, but I hadn't realized that anyone else had experienced the game in quite the same way I had. I had assumed my experience of it was unique and a little unusual, and perhaps it was to an extent. I don't think everyone who's ever played the game was necessarily intrigued and terrified by its deadly implications and had secret desires to become a real world roller coaster designer, but when I watched Geller's essay, I knew at least one other person had. Of course, the experience of realizing that your experience of a work was more universal or less universal than you thought can be provoked by many mediums but I think the potential that the video essay form provides the essayist in terms of conveying a specific subjective experience is greater than many other mediums of criticism or analysis allow. In fact, the most mentioned video in the poll this year, Kevin B. Lee's Once Upon a Screen Explosive Paradox, is an excellent example of this kind of thing. Watching Lee's essay, there's a power to being able to catch a glimpse of a subjective experience that was different from my own. The ability to convey a subjective experience to others who haven't had that experience is perhaps one of the biggest potentials of film and video in general and one that video essays inherit. But there's also something striking about an essay as conveying a subjectivity that matches so closely with your own as I experienced watching Geller's essay on Roller Coaster Tycoon that it leaves you questioning your uniqueness as a human. If this video inspired my work this year, it was just as a reminder that I shouldn't limit myself to the types of things that I think should be found within a specific work. Sometimes I'll have an experience, with a piece of media that seems profound beyond what the media or work itself was trying to convey, it's easy for me to want to limit myself to what feels almost like a reasonable uh, reading or analysis of something. But watching something like Geller's video reminds me that sometimes a work will provoke something that is much larger than what it seems to be on the surface level and that there is value and it is okay to convey that subdued even if I'm worried that maybe it's a little bit too specifically subjective to resonate with anyone else.
0: Thank you so much to everybody who provided commentary and now here is my conversation with the one and only Kevin B. Lee. Welcome. I guess I don't really know how to do an introduction here because you are either watching a video recording of this conversation or you're listening to this on the Video Essay Podcast. So I guess I'll address the podcast listener because I need more of a transition, I guess. But I'm joined here by someone who truly needs no introduction, Kevin B. Lee, who would be like on the Mount Rushmore of video essayists, I would say. And I I feel, Kevin, that I need to do a short little preface because unfortunately for listeners of the podcast, we're not you are not here to have a, I guess, a standard interview conversation, which we are going to do. And we've been talking about it for a while. And I'll just tease it here that Kevin and I have uh, some plans for a very fun, big, epic conversation that I have a ton of notes and questions that Kevin doesn't even know about yet. So we're going to try and surprise him, ask him. The problem with preparing to interview Kevin is he's done so many interviews that you kind of got to watch them all and like look for the gaps. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do, but I think this interview here will be a, a first because I don't think you've, you've had time to talk about what we're gonna talk about here today yet. And that is Kevin is in the process of developing basically a master's program of his own um, at the institution he teaches at in Germany. Um, But before we get to that, Kevin, I think it could be good to get a little slice of biography here in the sense that there may be people listening or watching who don't even know that you live in Germany or who don't know that you are a professor of cross-media publishing, which we'll get into what exactly that is. So I guess my first question is, give us, I guess, a condensed timeline of how you got to Germany,
7: where you are now, and, and what your current role is. Okay, sure. Thanks, Will. And thanks for having me in this uh, new kind of multimodal form of the video essay podcast, kind of breaking new ground. Um, so, yeah, in, it was in 2017, I had been invited to um, be a resident at the Harun Institute in Berlin uh, as an artist in residence. And that was uh, my first time living in Europe, in Germany. It was just supposed to be a three-month thing. And then it led to a series of speaking engagements, one of which was at the Merz Academy in Stuttgart. Um, and they, they invited me to do a workshop in video essays and also give a, a lecture about my, my history and practice with video essays. Uh, and this lecture actually is on Vimeo. Uh, I think if you just Google Kevin Lee, um, video essays, Merits Academy. You might, you might be able to find it. I don't know. And it's, it's a significant talk because this talk basically got me a job. So it's also like, if you want, if you want to see what, a a, a successful job talk is like, um, um, so I, I yeah I gave this talk about my background in video essays. I gave a workshop on video essays with some really great work. Um, I can even pull up an image of that, which is on my website. Yeah. So right here, if you go to my website, I have a section on teaching. And I, I just found this I just was looking for this before our, we got on. And I just found this interesting that uh, I had I was already sharing the results of the workshop. And if you can see it clearly enough, what the students were working on. There was, you know, stuff about movies, time travel, you know, your your, your typical kind of... uh, There was even a video essay about Roland Emmerich. So I'm like, okay, wow, everything in cinema is possible, even shitty filmmakers. But then stuff about Hitler's appearances on YouTube, YouTube makeup tutorials and Instagram stories. And this was actually the first time that I was engaged in video essays dealing with things other than film. And so that was that was exciting to me. Yeah, I mean, because the thing is, I was working with students who weren't necessarily film students. They were also uh, students in visual communications and new media, so they weren't so so film nerdy as as the people that you and I typically um, you know have encountered in video essay circles. And so this was this was a transitional moment for me. This was 2017, and since then I've just become increasingly interested in video essay practice outside of film studies um and it and it, it definitely reflects something about Meritz Academy Meritz Academy is an interdisciplinary school it's it's a small school it's very it's a very charming campus with about 200 students um let me see if I can pull up a, a little home page of the website and yeah it's it's uh great because there aren't So many students, even though there are basically four study areas, um, film video, visual communications, new media and cross media. So it has kind of an inherently um, interdisciplinary aspect to it because, because the school is so small that these study areas end up encountering each other and informing each other. And what I do at Cross Media I I was hired as a professor of cross media and uh, I feel like cross media really embodies this intersection of different media practices. So when I was, you know, when I, when I gave this talk, they informed me, Oh, we actually have an open position that we're trying to fill as professor of cross media publishing. And I asked them, wow, that's exciting. Uh, But you know, at the risk of, potentially disqualifying myself. What what exactly is cross-media publishing? Because I've never heard of this term before. <laughs> and, and they said, well, we're not exactly sure ourselves, <laughs> but we felt like we needed to design a study area that somehow fills a gap that the other study areas are not quite covering. Something that has to do with publishing, contemporary publishing practices that may be related to journalism or, you know, storytelling that, yeah. A- and what we see what you're doing with video essays on YouTube that are, on the one hand, engaging with film video, but somehow translating film um, history and film knowledge to a new media context, which is online media and social media. And so this to us somehow, in some ways, describes what cross media is. I'm like, OK, that's that's good enough for me. <laughs> so I so I, I I gave a I gave a presentation. I laid out an idea of what cross media yeah across a media curriculum that really puts greater emphasis on on content on critical engagement with content because I would say the other study areas are more focused on disciplinary principles of design of craft um, you know film video is very much about how you make a film how you um, you know how you direct how you stage things new media is you know, about uh, really having a, a true appreciation of coding, of interface design, visual communication, like graphic design, you know, layouts, things like that. And on my side, my emphasis is more on, okay, you, you have all these skills, now what do you want to apply these skills towards? Not just taking orders from a, you know, from a manager or a client, but really asking yourself, like, what are what's interesting to you that you want to interrogate, that you want to explore? Because that, to my, to me, is how video essays have have operated. It was always a means to facilitate a deep exploration of what I found most interesting and worth most worth understanding with regards to film and now the the larger spectrum of media that we are in now. So yeah, so for me, it's about to, you know topics that you want to engage in deeply and critically, stories that you want to tell, and how you design your interrogation exploration so that other people can come along with you. And that's, you know, for me, that's primarily through video essays. And, you know, since I'm regarded as an expert in that, that's definitely something that I offer as students as, as a model. But I think there's way more options for students to engage with. So, you know, if you want to design a website that has that kind of exploratory Interrogatory or investigative approach to your subject. Then how do you do that? If you design a poster, how do you do that? You know, or or a visual? What do you call it? A um, a, a graphic or data visualization, infographic. If you want to make a you know a, a film that's not a video essay but still have that kind of criticality to it. Yeah. So I I, I find that this general approach is super interesting, and and in the past. This past semester, I've now been invited to be the co-head a co-director of the Master's Project, along with David Quigley, who has a strong background in essay films and, and expanded cinema. So I feel like between the two of us, we have a natural affinity towards, well, film and media on the one hand, but also a critical and theoretical appreciation of, of how film can be used, not just like, not just film theory, but, you know, practicing theory through film. So I think, yeah, so I think between the two of us, we really have um, a strong potential. And so he's been leading the master's program for several years now. And now we're, yeah, now we're kind of working together to really give the department a stronger orientation towards an intermedial or cross-medial emphasis using the principles that I just described to you uh, with, you know, video essays as one approach, but video essays as an embodiment of this larger model of like critical engagement with media practice, you know, using media as a way to have deeper and more fulfilling engagements with your um, your subject of interest and, and using it as a way to find new networks, new platforms, because yeah, with my own experience with video essays, it was like using YouTube as a, um, as a new kind of opportunity. But I mean, this was back in 2007. Um, you know, it was, it was a newly available platform. And so how do you, take advantage of resources and platforms that present themselves to you in, within a particular moment, you know, just like you're, you know, you're making great use of podcasting to kind of take video essays in a new direction. And that's very exciting. It's, you know, something I I find to be a, a tremendous step forward for video essay, you know, studies and the culture in general. So it's like every, every moment in history has its, um, you know, has specific opportunities and affordances that we just need to be able to see and know how to engage with. So that's, that's another thing I really want to help um, students think deeply about. Who is, you've,
0: you've just touched on it in that answer, who is the... What's the typical profile for a student? Because I guess it's just kind of a two-part question, because I I think this term of creative or practice research, it's not a term that I had really encountered until I went and studied in, in Europe. And in fact, in one of the video essay Facebook groups, I don't know if you saw this the other day, but someone had posted you know, they wanted to do an audiovisual dissertation for a PhD um, and their university would not accept it. And so they were trying to get feedback, you know, is this something that can be done in the United States? And the answer was kind of, it's kind of maybe starting to be done in the United States, but not really, whereas it's perhaps far more common in Europe. And I know it's very common in the United Kingdom. So I guess this is kind of a, a, a two-part question because I that requires a little bit of context because I'm wondering had you encountered this term of kind of practice or creative research beforehand, and I guess for someone who may not be familiar with it, what is it? And the reason I ask that is because I think there's this. It seems to me from what you've said is that there's a mix of students who might enroll in a in a program like yours, where it might be students who are interested in being artists, but it might be inter- students who are also interested in perhaps learning more of a of a of a trade, maybe if 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 that's the correct way of of putting, it, meaning that like they want to work. Prefer- professionally as a graphic designer. Not 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 that there's not art involved in that, but but uh, I think there's a little bit of a difference there. And then it seems but it seems like the underlying thing is that someone who would enroll in this course would want to be like a content creator, whatever that means. So that's
7: my kind of rambly question to kind of set the stage for you to take the baton and run with it. No, I definitely I definitely see the connections there. Absolutely. No, and I also would love to hear your experiences. I mean you went to uh, I would I would just say a very prestigious or or you know very noteworthy master's program and so I'm, I'm curious how those questions applied to your experience or how you how you saw it but um, speaking for myself yeah I mean I had had the benefit of getting my master's um, I got an MFA and a master's and MA in um, visual and commu- visual and critical studies at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago which was just a really really fantastic program and they very much have this interdisciplinary artistic research model so you know it's I got an MFA which is very much a studio based degree but even in the ma uh, which is typically a more academic um practice uh students were encouraged to explore their research topic through creative means through whether through you know painting or illustration or filmmaking or web design so you know i i made um a video exploration of um, LED lights in China as my MA practice. My MFA was Transformers the Pre-Make, which in itself you could say was a form of artistic research because I was investigating this topic of global blockbuster production um, and I was writing papers i was writing texts about it but my ultimate product was this video essay um so you know so there so it, it poses very interesting possibilities and questions of you know modes of research you know textual based research publication versus video or installation or other art forms you know how how knowledge is produced the, the question of yeah, jobs, which, of course, is very practical, <laughs> is, is super important. It, it's interesting because I think in some ways this artistic research turn, it happened over the last 20 years or so. I think it's one reason why Harun Faroqi became such a big deal around the 90s, because he had been a, a scholar, a theorist, critic and filmmaker for a couple decades before that. And then... When the art world started showing more interest in video and filmmaking in the 90s, he, he kind of was invited to present himself as an artist. But um, yeah, but I, I think it's also so on the one hand, it's like art and research being increasingly exposed to a greater range of possibilities for for how one can practice because filmmaking and media and video have just become more and more available and more prolific. I think it's also a way for art to justify itself or to reassert its value within an increasingly technocratic um, economy. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to lie here. I mean, I think, you know, in in an age where like STEM programs and science science um, has tremendous kind of authority or, or centrality with regard to like where research budgets are going and it needs to be considered useful research because yeah humanities funding has really been quite challenged in the over the last 20 or 30 years so in some ways it's a tactical move to like align artistic practice to what can be considered useful research, you know, and I, I kind of go both ways about that. I, I think that, you know, it's, I don't think humanities should have to justify itself along those lines. I mean, and I think our, our society, our culture should have a greater appreciation of things that aren't like bottom line useful, you know what I mean? But it, so, it, so it creates a very interesting dialogue or debate. Whatever the case, at least with something like video essays, it provides a very fascinating ground for how knowledge gets produced in a way that can be deemed, uh, well, Useful and you know useful knowledge on the one hand, you know because the knowledge then is is articulated in a way that somehow engages an audience um, to a greater capacity than a text. I mean, you definitely see this in academia, where like uh, I I I know and you probably know scholars whose video essays circulate much more widely than their than their books or their you know or the texts that they publish, right? So if you you want to talk about utility, right? So there's that. One thing I've also noticed is
0: like I've gone and sometimes I go to someone's like CV or something and they like link to maybe a journal article and like the link's dead or I can't or like there's something wrong with the database or doesn't work. Whereas with the Vimeo or YouTube, even if you do get it published in like an in transition, say you still have agency over the Vimeo file. So you have greater control. So the accessibility aspect is part of why it gets seen, you know?
7: Wow. That's a, oh man. Okay. You're, you're opening a whole door into like, just what's, what's wrong with like contemporary academic publishing, which, uh, (laughs) I mean, I, I, I'm not so engaged with that, but I've definitely, I've. I've I've heard stories and you probably have future guests coming who who have been personally affected by that. So, you know, what my one trump card I could play is, you know, hashtag 2020 has changed everything. We know we can we can assume about jobs, you know, and this is actually something I'm very, very deeply invested in creating an arena for me and students and colleagues to collectively Explore those questions to really ask the necessary questions. Well, first of all, identify what are the necessary questions with regard to to economy, to labor, to the environment, to to media that, you know, the covid pandemic has just kind of thrown thrown into into question. Um, how can we, you know, how can we understand and recognize what's at stake with all these and what are the new approaches strategies and resources that we can engage with uh that we can start to work with in the face of that you know and and speaking for myself you know the the most successful career options i've had are ones that i've designed myself you know for whatever reason and you know maybe we can get into that in the longer conversation to come but um long story short like i've yeah the 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 jobs that kind of pre-existed that i applied for have never been as fulfilling either personally or even um, yeah monetarily as like things that I've come to devise myself, things that didn't quite exist, you know. And again, I look to you as an example with like video essay podcasts. This does not exist before, and now it's really the thing that that's that I very closely associate with your practice, like that that helps define you. And so that's that's a, you know. And so that's the kind of thing I would want to be teaching my students to kind of design. So you're kind of like a model, uh, you're a model student already. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, actually, so I I lied to you. I
0: said I didn't have anything to share on the screen. I'm wondering if you could pull it up for me. If you were to pull up my newsletter, because I wrote an essay a couple days ago that touches on exactly what you talk about, which is uh, the video essay.substack.com. And uh, I wrote about practicality. Because I was asked to kind of address some of the questions that you just mentioned in speaking with a couple groups of students about video essay and particularly this kind of uh, like the utility of it, which is like such a awful way of
7: talking about it, as you just said. Right. And that's another that's another thing is like, you know, when people say, oh, I need uh, can you help me find a job and let's just, you know, can we just like get that done? I think it's important to push push back a little bit and have a moment of critical hesitation. That's a term that Alison Dufresne introduced to me, and I'm I, I think it's a, a great term to like before you just rush into something. Take a moment to ask yourself why, like or or really like um, what's at stake here. Um, yeah. So anyway, so here we are. Yeah. No. And yeah, there there we
0: are. And in that in that essay, of practicality, I I was trying to touch on some of these questions that. You just mentioned, particularly in the sense that with humanity, you know, I think we're the as much as we don't want the humanities to kind of fall into the more like uh, like I mean, it's like I don't want to insult anybody. So it's hard to say, but I guess like, you know, this this push by the university to have everything, every major translate. Directly into a job and into an an income, which a lot of people need. Hey, I I need it. I have a ton of student loan debt and everything. So I'm like in that boat. So, but it seems to me that video essay is a happy balance in the sense that for me, I was kind of trying to answer the question, like, why should you take a video essay course? was kind of how I was trying to answer it in my head. And and video essay course, but I think could also be applied to the course that Kevin's teaching and just cross media in general. And this idea that it, there's, it's kind of this three layered thing, and I'm sure there are more, which is A, you get, let's say you actually want to be a video essayist. Okay. Then that's why you should take the course. Let's say you don't want to be a video essayist, but you're interested in film in some way, whether you want to be a critic, a filmmaker, or like when I was in the master's program at Cambridge, we, I won't say the name, but we had a very high level Hollywood producer come and talk to us who got an MA in cinema studies from NYU. And he was like, he did his thesis on like Maya Darren, like is a very into like avant-garde American cinema. And he said that that was like a formative experience for him and helped him all along the way because he had an understanding of film that a lot of people don't Right, Like he could do the business of film, but also could read a script and know what was good, what was going to work, and that helped him. And then the third tier is that you are learning video editing, right? So, or you're learning maybe After Effects or Adobe Audition or InDesign or you know, I know I'm listing all the Creative Cloud products, but whatever, any 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 other program
7: that you could then. Yeah, this, this podcast brought to you by I think maybe you've got a you've got a sponsor there. <laughs> hey, seriously,
0: if you if they want to sponsor me, I'm more than happy to. Actually, I'd be happy <laughs> if they just waived my frigging 30 or $40 a month fee or whatever it is. I'd be happy with right. that. Um, but then you have a skill that you could then translate into other things. And one of the interesting things about, and I talked about this in the, in the short blog post. but now that I've done the video, I say podcast for over a year, you start to pick up trends and we have people who work as freelance trailer editors for Netflix or who, 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 uh, who, do uh freelance editing on the side as a, as their main income or supplementary income and the youtube channel kind of helps get them new clients for that so it, it's this kind of multi-layered thing where one isn't necessarily better than the other but at the end of the day it is promoting humanistic inquiry so i i do think that is a benefit in the long run The other thing I would say is, which I think is slightly different, and I'd be curious to hear what you think about this, is that, so I went to Middlebury College, as I'm sure people know if you're familiar with me, and I took the video essay course taught by Jason Mattel. And I posted my final video essay to Vimeo, Pretty much right away when I was when I finished the course because I just kind of wanted to have it out there. I was probably applying to some job and figured it look good like in my portfolio, like if I'm like my blog or my website or whatever had whatever I had at the time. Um, and I just tagged on Vimeo video essay that got picked up by Jacob Aller who at the time was writing for Film School Rejects um, and he wrote a short piece on it for Film School Rejects. And then a month later, Film School Rejects opened up editorial internship applications and my internship application I put the video I was like, hey, P.S. I made a video essay that you guys wrote about and I had been previous. Rejected to the internship before, but this time I was accepted. And that has really opened up a ton of doors for me. That was where I started writing video essay guides, which caught the attention of like people like Katie Grant. Um, and so it's just been this snowball effect. And that's a long way of saying that I by the time end of my time at Middlebury, I became a big believer of focusing my academic works on things that I could then make publicly available, like when possible. Um, which A has that kind of like shitty utility aspect. it, but also because I felt like it made me care about the work more and it made it better because I was like, oh, people will see this. And I think that's such an important aspect of video essay making. And I'm wondering, and it seems to me that in a lot of practice research, creative research type programs, like with you with Transformers, the premier or whatever, like the end result is typically something that you would like make public. And I'm wondering if that's a component of the program that that, uh, you're thinking about and how does that, I guess, kind of shape how you think about this whole realm of humanities research and how you, I guess, would structure a curriculum. Like, is that a, is that a component that you think is important? And like, in your experience, do students find that exciting or are they like I can also imagine being really turned off by it, like "Holy shit, I have to put this out into the world." Like, what are your, what are your thoughts there?
7: Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. That's uh, it's such a rich question, and you know, my first instinct is, yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it definitely, it definitely speaks to my own background, and you know, the 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 success or the the moments of fulfillment that I enjoyed with my work were very much when I felt like I was connecting to. Whether it was an audience of of you know thousands or or hundreds of thousands through a video that I made that went viral, or just even a handful of people who uh, saw something that wasn't so like mainstream, but really expressed in a way that was was personally very personally very um, fulfilling for me, and and you know five people see it and they they understand what I'm getting at. Um, but either way, it really gets to the question of, yeah, who are you making it for? And and this is why cross media publishing, you know, that's why the word publishing is in it. It's like it, it is about now that we are in an age of kind of ubiquitous publishing, like, every, you know, social media is basically made us into publishers and publishing has become kind of a, a default mode of of contemporary life uh, for better or worse i mean it's definitely something to be critically examined it's not you know just because it's the new normal doesn't mean it's good but but just that because it has this ubiquity it needs to be addressed one way or another so that becomes like a, a, a defining topic for For every student to have to come to their own terms, their own definition of like, okay, what does this afford them? You know, if publishing is something you want to engage in, what are the resources and the avenues available to you or how how do you find the right avenues and options for you? And if you're not invested in cultivating a public around your practice, then what else is there, you know? But at least to lay out all those options in front of a student, which I I don't think a lot of graduate programs, frankly, are either cognizant of either. They don't they don't whether because they're just not so engaged in social media context, uh, their their professors haven't really been engaging in that because whether because they're just like more rooted in a more traditional academic context that doesn't care about social media um, or or like, you know, online publishing or or they just or they, you know, look at it critically and disparagingly. It's like, oh, that's so I don't know, lowbrow or whatever. But for me, because it was it has been so vital to my own background and it, it is something that I see as so ubiquitous among the the Gen Z's and millennials that I've worked with as students. Like it, it, it's just, it's the thing that we all have to deal with one way or another. So I, I'm making that into like a core uh, consideration of what the students need to come to terms with in their own way. So yeah. Would part of your curriculum require that a student
0: think, come up with a publishing plan? Or uh, that sounds like so like boring, but I mean, like, would like, you know, just think critically thinking through how would they find their audience? for it across a series of platforms like is that what you mean
7: yeah if only as a thought yeah if only as a thought experiment i mean uh, at some point they do have to ask yourself you kind of ask yourself what does this work for and maybe in the past maybe with other graduate programs it's like you you write a paper and the paper gets graded and that's it you know and, and a story and the thing is you know i personally have have witnessed so many instances where a student like not just master's students or grad students but bachelor's students they'll make a a video essay for a class and then just on their own whim, it's like, Oh, I did this, but you know, it feels like kind of relevant. Like it feels kind of connected to like things I see on YouTube or Vimeo. So what if I just post it out there and the next thing, you know, it has this audience that, and you know, I, I can, I can name people like Jessica McGough, Jesse McGough, like, you know, the first video that got Attention for her was this assignment she made in a class. Um, I think it w- it's even acknowledged in this video essay made by Ian Garwood, who was her professor at the University of Glasgow. This one called um, "the sig- something about the significance of the voice in videographic criticism and scholarship," um, and it was talking about how yeah, and 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 he tells a story in that video about how Jesse had made that Branson video in class and then posted it on. On, um, on Vimeo and then IndieWire picked it up and next thing she knows, like now she's a practicing video essayist. So, so, you know, it's there. And I think programs need to acknowledge that, that, you know, academic, the academic world is not um, sealed off to itself. And I would even, I would even question its centrality. And again, it, you know, it gets into larger issues of neoliberalism and how, how digital technologies and industries have thoroughly disrupted the, The academic and educational institutions in terms of how knowledge is produced, how knowledge is circulated. But yeah, that's the elephant in the room and you can't just ignore it. So I would definitely want this program to to confront those questions head on and ask ourselves, like, how how do we make sense of academic research and practices and careers in this reality that we find ourselves in? Just to add a little something to that, um I'll go back to the screen share. You know, I think and I think some of the modes of practice that we're talking about um speak to this very well, specifically because it's COVID, you know, it's a COVID world we're living in. In my website, well, first of all, I just welcome everyone to my website, also like life.com. And yeah, and then, you know, and I I I just redesigned this. We could talk about it in the next um interview that we have. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean I I've 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 really had to take I I redesigned this during quarantine. I really, you know, like, like a lot of people, I used COVID as a moment of kind of self-reflection, re-evaluation and, and definition. And it's like, OK, you know what, I got to I really got to embrace the hashtags, <laughs> you know, the, the hashtags that will follow me to my grave. Like this was what will be etched on my tombstone, you know, video essays, desktop, cinema and cross media. I mean, these, these are the, the things I, I guess I'm most proud of. And um, yeah, and following that, it's like, okay, this is what I have to offer the world, you know, as a, as a teacher, as a practitioner. So um, although although the practice is broadly defined, it's it's meant to be artistic research. And so it's like, you don't have to be making video per se. And, you know, if you're working with me and if you're interested in web design or, you know, um, visual communications, graphic design, or, or even filmmaking that's not video essays and documentaries, that's fine. Um, I I think the principles still apply but at the same time yeah, I'm here. So if you are interested in video essays and desktop documentaries and other digital essayistic research practices, I really can think of no better place or, or very few better places than working with me at Meritz Academy, especially when these forms have gained significant relevance for understanding life during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. Probably because like these are some of the the few like really accessible and viable modes of video production available when you're in lockdown. So, you know, like I, I taught video essays and desktop documentaries during quarantine and the results were amazing. Yeah, so, so part of it is pragmatic, but because it was a pragmatic solution to a, um, a very real limited situation and challenge we're all dealing with, it actually provides a model for anyone to think about, okay, what are the pragmatic resources available to me with whatever it is I wanna do and how do I make, the, make use of them? So, you know, and this is, this is just a very fundamental question that we all need to ask ourselves, you know, in, in terms of redefining artistic research or career development or whatever
0: if you're listening to this audio there'll be links to everything that kevin is mentioning um on the web page but i'm gonna ask you a tough question now which if anyone has ever heard me talk about video essay and i'm sure a bunch of other people like the thing i like most about it is how accessible it is in the sense that as long as you like i thought nelson carvajal did a great job of talking about this in uh in our interview uh two episodes ago i'm not sure what exactly about how anyone with a laptop and access to any type of editing software and YouTube and whatever can like make something happen. There's very few barriers to entry as long as you can get access to some basic technology, which of course, none everyone has access to. But so why would someone do a master's in this?
7: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I and I totally embrace the democratic aspect of that. Um, you know, and I, yeah, I've, I've definitely practiced it and benefited from myself. You know, nobody told me to make a video essay I just kind of intuitively fell into it back in like 2006 or 2007 I was I had a blog where I was looking at you know uh great films of all time from this from this can canonical list I was following and I was blogging about each film and then YouTube was available so I started posting clips on YouTube and embedding them on the website and I was like oh wait if I actually I could actually like take the text from my blog entry and narrate it in the video clip and then I can you know combine the text and the video and upload that to YouTube so wow that's cool you know it's so it was, it was an organic process of kind of evolving uh based on so you know nobody like that just sort of happened but but the thing is that what what the next step was, though, was um, having deep engagements because I was like, OK, I, I, I can do this on my own or I, I can also start to invite other people as collaborators. And I, um, yeah, started like contacting people like Matt Zoller Seitz, Richard Brody, Vadim Rizov at Filmmaker, who's now at Filmmaker, um, asking them what kind of what film would you want to talk about? And we we started collaborating on these together. And with each collaboration, I just got a deeper knowledge. Yeah. And still, you know, and you can still do this on your own. But um, with the Meritz Academy program, you will have instantly that kind of collaborative and mentoring environment available to you, starting with me as a professor. You know, so it's it's twofold. It's like um, providing that collaboration that community that mentoring which then allows you to really accelerate the process much probably much faster than you would on your own or at least it's encouraging you to 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 make full take full advantage of the circumstances that this program provides you and yeah and and just really practicing that skill practicing what collaboration is so that you know beyond the beyond the project beyond the uh, the program you have that with you and that will carry you much further yeah i mean we've we've received applications so far since i i made the initial announcement about my involvement in the program some some are definitely attracted to the prospect of living and working in germany or in europe um as opposed to being in the us i mean things you know I don't know how people feel right now at this at this moment, but, you know, it was before the election, there was, it was definitely grim and people were like, okay, I really can't wait to get out of the U.S. I mean, now it's I mean, the, the pandemic is just as bad, but um, if not worse. But it, in any case, if people just need want a, a new a new environment in which to practice. Um, yeah, the Merits Academy is is a great environment. It's it's a small school. It has the campus has this kind of movie version of a college campus feel to it, if I can describe it. Yeah, it's it's, it's small and everybody knows each other. So I, I mean, that's one thing I really love about teaching there is I, I basically know everybody. So there's this great sense of familiarity and intimacy to the program that, um, well, you know, living in lockdown definitely means a lot because it's just um, something about, yeah, something about meaningful social bonds so, you know, and I think you you went to Middlebury Will, so I think you you might know what I mean. Like it's a very it's a huge difference between studying at Middlebury and studying at like, you know, a huge like state university with like tens of thousands of students. So, so we have that to offer and yeah, and through that kind of Closeness, you can have a deeper engagement with with topics and with the relationships and networks that are that those topics connect to. So um, yeah, so I think that's something very special about the program that just kind of doing it on your own or having a day job might not necessarily grant you. I think yeah, actually Middlebury pres- actually provides a model. I'm um, I'm really struck and inspired by what Jason Mattel and Christian Keithley, you know, your professors at, at Middlebury have done, kind of mobilizing resources to create a fantastic program in video essay research and production, you know, with with undergrad students doing outstanding work. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really provided a lot of food for thought and, you know, and, and this fantastic curriculum that they actually make publicly available through their website, which I've definitely cribbed notes from when I've been teaching video essays myself. Um, Videographic Pecha Kucha for Life. So uh, <laughs> yeah, and even yeah, and even your your you know podcast website you know has those prompts as exercises. So that's really fantastic that you've made that methodology like more openly available. You know, it's, it's very generous and and very empowering. Um, so yeah, so I would love to devise something that's as defining I mean yeah why not like I, I I I've been very deeply invested in video essays for over a decade now I would love to you know I really want to devise a signature program that really takes my own background and my own understanding of the form working with you know um, motivated and enthusiastic students who want to really accomplish something with it. And yeah, I mean, another model that I take a lot of inspiration from is the uh, Harvard sensory ethnography lab that um, Lucian Casting Taylor, you know, founded, I think it was over a decade ago. Or one, yeah, maybe two decades ago that really kind of cemented uh, itself. It, it really st- Put a stamp on documentary practice and kind of redefine documentary practice based on a, a very yeah, concrete and deeply felt set of principles about what documentary should or should not be. And was able to yeah, bring together students who who were committed to that as well or really wanted to realize their own practices through those principles. I think this is what great programs need to do at this point, because there are so many Artistic research practice uh, programs out there. I mean, it really um, started in the in the mid '90s and took on a life of its own. For you know, due to factors that we had discussed earlier, based on like you know, making making use of the new like technocratic ideologies that are you know influencing the humanities humanities research and practice. But it has become a bit diluted or or let's just say it's become so familiar that it becomes generic and i think now is a very important moment to reassert and revitalize what exactly do we mean by artistic research um is, is, you know like for again to what end for me it's always about to what end it's like okay you've got to f- film, you got a film program, but what's, what makes your film program special or what, what really is the philosophy behind it, you know, and what do you want it to accomplish? So, yeah. So I've, i based on my own experiences, my own practices, it really is putting a more specific and purposeful stamp onto the general artistic research proposition, um, uh, based on the lessons I've learned through video essays and desktop documentary practice. That was going to be kind of my next question, which is what is one gap
0: in the in academia in, in this kind of practice research realm that you've that you've seen and that you hope that this program I guess aims and attempts to fill. And I guess another way of phrasing that would be apart from you and everything else, like what is someone who enrolls in this program, what are they not gonna get elsewhere? And I guess I don't I don't mean like in terms of like you like uh, I, I mean in terms of literally like the, the curriculum it, it's itself, I guess.
7: Yeah, I mean, I don't know so much about other programs that I, I don't want to make like sweeping generalizations. I mean, otherwise, I, I mean, I could I could like kind of construct a bogeyman. And, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have things that I have observed. I've, I've definitely observed things that, you know, from my own experiences as a grad student and as a professor that I could just sort of ge- generalize as recognizing the gaps yeah, like you just said, you know, what are the gaps? I think that one, one gap is just not being able to see the gaps. <laughs> and, you know, like um, to, to use an example, um, there's, there is this method of teaching in Germany called the Frontal Unterricht, which means frontal teaching or frontal presentation. It's basically like your classic lecture model of how to teach, where someone is standing and delivering a lecture that's been prepared and basically reading a text for the most part. And the students basically listen and take notes. So it's it's basically like a script that the professor delivers. And um, this model I find has really exposed itself as outmoded or ineffective in the era of Zoom lessons. From what I've, from what I've heard, um, students tell me, oh my God, I, I had to listen to this like two hour lecture on Zoom where someone's basically reading a script. And it's just like, it was, it was numbing. Um, it wasn't engaging. And I'm basically like, you know, here to like write notes or perform and something was just really absent about it. And then, you know, I take a, I, I teach in a more like American seminar style. It's more more conversational, more more Socratic. It's like, I'm asking questions of the students and getting them to like respond and to think. And, and for German students, it's quite um, disruptive and, and puts them on the spot. It's like, oh, I have to say something. I remember one time I, I asked the students a question and then one of, the, one of the students, after like an awkward pause, the students were like, aren't you going to tell us to answer? And <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it's, the thing is, like that, that makes sense. If, if, if you are used to the frontal unterricht method, where the professor is the dispenser of knowledge and you're just a recipient of it. But you know you went to a Liberal Arts College will so you probably know what I'm talking about where it's it's more about provoking the students to think for themselves to kind of be put in that awkward position of not knowing and having to search for the answer or the possibility of the answer which you know when you're in real life suddenly becomes the new norm like okay life doesn't give you doesn't always give you the answers uh and and you kind of have to find your own way sometimes so yeah so so you know that that's really provided me with with a lot of room to explore in terms of like what does it mean to teach in COVID times like you just can't take these things for granted like what's really at stake you know which is why I kind of have this layout this (laughs) this which is just kind of meant to create a I don't know a mood or you know I, I it's not perfect but it's like kind of um presenting some questions about okay wow this is interesting to look at or like what's going on here and um yeah. And just just getting students to think about what the gaps are, you know, and, and a lot of that is, you know, it's interesting because it, in what, some ways it kind of ties back to like key principles of cinema. Like for me, one of the most powerful concepts of cinema is montage. When you put one image next to another and you compare them or that, that creates this jolts of at least in the Eisensteinian, you know, con- conceptualization of montage, you put two images that don't quite make sense together and that that gap that irritation is what sparks this dialectical, you know, discovery uh, or an insight on behalf of the audience. And that's such a powerful model. That's such a powerful concept that I try to enact that, you know, I try to point out the gaps. Uh, for students to to be confronted with and think about. So even in presentations, like I've, I've kind of encouraged students to adopt different presentation modes. So it's like, you know, one student is doing a PowerPoint, reading a script, another is like doing it in a more conversational way. One student even like just filmed herself as we're doing right now with the webcam with like no visuals whatsoever. Because it's like, I don't want I don't want my um, my audience to be I don't know distract. I feel like the visuals are getting in the way, and I would just rather speak to them directly. Like you see you see me, you hear my voice, and what can that afford? Uh, you know, people who are making making like video essays as opposed to powerpoints or these kind of hybrid like platypus like uh, powerpoints as videos. <laughs> so it's and and we line them all up, and you know now you have this this wonderful spectrum of possibilities that each student can be like okay you can do that way you can do it that way you know And so what i love about that is the sort of crowd you know it's definitely something about having a crowdsourcing background where like you know i'm asking different people on twitter for input on a question that's how spielberg face was made it was like you know what's the i need to make a video essay about spielberg anyone have any ideas like what would be an interesting idea for spielberg and that's how i got like it was it was some guy who sent me his article. Like it was Matt Patches who sent me his article on Spielberg face. So I wasn't actually the person who invented the Spielberg face concept, but I adapted it to a video essay, which then, you know, went really did really well. So yeah, the way of kind of like knowing what the resources are available to you or or that you can call upon to help you de- develop your concept to see what the best options are that you wanna pursue. Yeah. So and a lot of that is being able to make critical comparisons and recognitions of you know of different of yeah and evaluations of different options so that's that's something that i would that i very much uh believe in and we we practice at every opportunity in the master's program
0: absolutely and that notion of like not going into a situation expecting or containing complete knowledge it's like right in line with i guess the Middlebury approach to video essay making right like you shouldn't go into the video essay you shouldn't open up premiere knowing exactly what you're going to do right like you should be using the, the less you know about what you're going to do and as you're playing around with premiere that is what sparks this this creativity and this it, it, development of new knowledge i guess uh so i guess i think it's perfectly suited for that
7: yeah. Yeah, it gets back to the the classic kind of dichotomy of, you know, video essays as being exploratory or explanatory. You know, like we I think we've we've touched on that in the past. And yeah, I'm I'm team exploratory without a doubt. And I think there's something very powerful about being able to enact an experience, an experiential, you know, media practice where your audience is they feel like they're discovering it almost in real time along with you. Um there's something You know, I think there's something very powerful, like, you know, you you used the word humanistic uh, earlier, and I I definitely believe in that, like, especially in an age of, you know, kind of like artificial intelligence and algorithms kind of dominating our, our lives in so many ways and you know, and being, being confined to like media interfaces and Zoom screens and so, many, so much technical filtering, like how do we rediscover human experience, human connections? Um, yeah, and how do, we, how do we make video essays reconnect to that, that humanness, uh, which is, I feel is very precious right now. Yeah, and I, I connect it to also to, you know, there's this term called experience design, uh, which is also very important to me. I mean, it, t- traditionally, it's a, it's a new media concept. It's meant to describe like user interfaces or VR experiences. But I think that experience design can be applied more broadly to, yeah, if to everyday life. Like, you know, to see yourself as having the agency and certainly like Facebook and YouTube definitely promote like, oh yeah, you are now, the content creator of your own life, you know? So, okay, if that's the case, then how how do you approach that with a design, a critical design um, methodology or ideology in mind? Like, uh, you know, how do you take responsible, conscientious and critical approaches towards designing the media experiences and, and artistic research experiences uh, that you then present for others to experience. So, um, yeah, so, so it is it is about thinking about what kind of experiences you want to share and how do you share them.
0: Well, I think
7: we have talked about the program.
0: We've given, I think, people a taste of the Kevin Bee they will get if they enroll in this program. So I have one final question, but is there anything else that we haven't
7: covered yet that you wanted to touch on? Sure. So, what is on the Merits Academy website describes the program as it exists now. Um, so, just to make that clear, that this is currently under revision. One one important aspect is that there will be likely a greater emphasis on personal mentorship. So, students will have greater options for like choosing professors that they would want to personally designate as their advisors or mentors. And this is something that's yeah, this is very important for me because it's like if, if people are coming to work with me or to work with video essays or desktop documentaries or critical media practice, then I want to, you know, make it known that, OK, you you do have a greater access to working with me if you want. So so that is important. Yeah. And the program will be in English and or German. So like we're, we're trying to make things more accessible from a language standpoint. It is meant to cater to an international uh, student base and uh, the program has gotten more international over over the years. So yeah, so people shouldn't worry like if their German isn't so great. Uh, uh, my German is not so great, so <laughs> I welcome you to keep to as an ally in in you know just kind of asserting our own kind of language disabilities <laughs> and making the most of it. Like I don't speak German, but I speak video essay. So you know I think that's what matters. I <laughs> see um, what else is on the. Yeah. So basically, um, yeah. And my my contact information is on my website. So if if people have questions that they want to ask about the program, they can just contact me directly. So. um, So, yeah, it is it is a program that's in the process of being revised based on the inputs that I want to give. And I think by by next year it will be fully um, or at least, you know the things I'm talking about will be available and in practice for students who, who really want to, yeah, really want to go this in this direction for their own study and, and career advancement.
0: I will say there's already been, I've already gotten messages from people saying, damn it. Why did I already have to do a master's degree? Why can't I, (laughs) why why wasn't this around three, three years ago? And and I count myself, um, in that group. So this is very, very exciting. And, um, yeah, I think that mentorship thing is so important. Like, I can't imagine. I was lucky enough to even have good mentors in my master's program, which um, you know was not a small liberal arts college like Middlebury. So that I I can't imagine us being in school without that. So it's very exciting to see that that be such a major emphasis um, on what you're doing.
7: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean. Well, no, exactly, because it it feeds into the larger question of what really are the necessary and productive elements towards a program. Like, I don't take any of this for granted. I'm basically building this program, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conceptualizing or evaluating this program from the ground up. It's, it's definitely based on experiences I've had as a grad student and as a professor, like as a student, what is it that I wish I wanted? As a professor, what is it that I would want students to have? And yeah, there's nothing, to my mind, there's nothing more fulfilling than a really fulfilling conversation between between individuals, whether two individuals or a group of individuals in a class. Uh, just recently, I was listening to a podcast, 99% Invisible, the host, Roman Mars. I think the topic was about ed- the education and teaching crisis caused by COVID-19. And he had this great point that, you know, um, to my mind, a true classroom the ideal classroom is nothing more than a space that facilitates a meaningful conversation between individuals. One in a conversation where you you feel like, yeah, knowledge has really productive, stimulating knowledge has been exchanged. Experiences have been exchanged. um, And it's not just about acquiring knowledge, but also the social bonds produced by shared knowledge. And I think that's really important um, in, in the face of the kind of global crisis that we're in like what are the the social bonds that we feel are necessary to provide a better life for everyone you know yes. so so it's it's knowledge and also just what knowledge produces in terms of yeah like our relationships to each other. So, yeah, I think again, this is why the podcast is so great. Like you you've you've helped you've helped generate so many wonderful conversations around this work and so it's not just like we're all, you know, in this like anonymous digital space admiring each other's work from afar. Like you you've you've helped bring people into closer orbits and uh, yeah, and and just learning and listening to these amazing conversations uh, it's been it's been great. So I'm, I'm really grateful for the chance to be part of that um, and being able to share this with you.
0: Well, thank you. That means a lot because it was definitely my hope and aspiration that, that would be true. Um, and I think that's so spot on. Like, I think there was a sense pre-COVID, or at least there was a lot of conversations. I feel like there was a push. People were like, why can't you just do online school all the time? And I think COVID in many ways has... Taught us that, like, so much of the tangible benefits of a university are those social connections that you build by being in the same room together. And I think we took that for granted a lot. So I think going forward, we're just going to crave that even more. And in that vein, my final question is what do you? Kevin B. Lee hope to take away from this program? Like, how do you, what's your personal goals for, I guess, growth either as a video essayist, as a teacher, as a mentor, as all three, like what is, what are, what's your aspiration? You've talked about what you want students to get out of it, but what do you, uh, what do you want to get
7: out of it? I mean it's I guess in a way you can say it's my own my own version of video essay podcast like it's it's basically my my arena where I get to you know encounter people who are here presumably because they're invested or very um, enthusiastic about the form and they want to learn stuff and I want to learn stuff from them and yeah I uh, well you know I also want to to be totally blunt, to, to I mean, it sounds a bit like Kanye West, but I want to I want to make some history, like you know, it's it's I want I want I I really want a program that can really make a mark on this form as we recognize it, um, and also can take it into different exciting directions, way beyond simply like a a, a new form of film studies, but really, you know, applying film studies principles, um, or you know videographic principles to really regard the world at large, um, make work that circulates. You know, I I would lo- I want nothing more than students' works to uh, to circulate widely and and make an impact. I see this as an extension or a, a a next phase of my own practice. I mean, of course, I want to keep making films as well, but um, yeah, but I I want to do it in a way that's like really aligned and enriched by my teaching practice. So it's for me, it's very much a next phase of just kind of inner integrating all the different things I'm involved in, you know, and really giving it a stronger definition and, and making the most of it. So, yeah. So I'm looking forward to welcoming others on this journey, <laughs> but, um, yeah, maybe, and maybe some of them will be future guests on your podcast. That would be a fantastic outcome. <laughs> I I'm sure they will. Um,
0: no, it's, it's very exciting. And some people argued that Kanye West made a video essay this year, right? Like with one of his music videos, I think that was, I've, have seen some discourse around that. So I guess maybe citing
7: Kanye isn't too, uh, too,
0: <laughs> too out of the box.
6: Yeah.
7: Okay. All right. I can, I can have him as a guest speaker then.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, this is very exciting. Congratulations in advance. Um, you know, I, I really hope people, people reach out and who knows, maybe I'll win the lottery and then I can just come hang out in Germany with you and your students all the time. I'm very, I'm very jealous of people who will have this, um, this opportunity. And I'm really excited to see what it does to, uh, the field and to the community and stuff, which just continues to, I feel like, uh, develop new ways of connecting with one another and, and championing each other's work. So this seems... Like the perfect venue to do that so congratulations and i can't wait to watch your students video essays <laughs> um, and share them yeah. so all right thank you
7: very much will